0: This week's episode of the Skift Airline Weekly Lounge is brought to you by Blue Sky, a news service from the Pittsburgh International Airport. Visit blueskypit.com and subscribe to get weekly headlines on airport and aviation news, trends, and ideas. That's blueskypit.com. Hi, and welcome to the Skift Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm Madoni Christian, your host, the editor of Skift Airline Weekly, and I'm joined today in Skift's New York's office with Brian Summers. Gift Travel's Senior Aviation Business Editor. Brian, thanks for joining us. We just wrapped up two days of this Gift Global Forum here in New York, where both of us had some interesting conversations on stage with uh, some senior airline executives. And I wanted to kick this conversation off by asking you about your interview with uh, Derek Kerr, um, American's Chief Financial Officer. What were, what were your key takeaways from that, uh, that conversation? First off, uh, Madhu, thank you for having me here on the podcast.
1: Uh, I always enjoy listening to the Airline Weekly Lounge, and it is, a, it is just thrilling uh, to be here with you. Uh, you're right, uh, we're fresh off the Skiff Global Forum here in New York City. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we had uh, American Airlines CFO, Derek Kerr. I made sure not to ask him any rasm or chasm questions. We really didn't focus so much on the financials of the
0: airline. But the overall health of the airline. And, you know, to, just to clarify to those of you who listen to the Skift Airline Weekly Lounge, um, the Skift Global Forum is not really an airline industry conference. It's more a travel industry conference. So um, we didn't really get into a lot of the uh, sort of nerdy Um, wonky airline things that we normally do. So uh, sorry to interrupt, Brian, continue. Great, Uh, but there are a lot of interesting questions to ask American
1: Airlines right now, and and I I would distill that in in one way, and I, I don't mean any offense to any of our listeners who work there, but the big question is, what's wrong with American Airlines right now? Uh, It has been a very tough summer for American Airlines with their labor dispute. Um, I understand the mechanics are mostly uh, back to work right now, um, but I'm not sure that the numbers show it necessarily. Uh, You know, we're starting to see something in American that reminds me of what was happening at United, say, five or seven years ago. The frontline employees don't seem too happy, Uh, reliability is suffering, and we're not sure what's going to come next. Uh, Derek Kerr, the CFO, said, just give us some time. Um, look for us to improve in 2020. He said they are talking with the mechanics union. If they can get a deal with the mechanics union, that should help reliability at the airline. And reliability is of course, so important for the top tier customers. As I said uh, earlier today on, uh, on TV, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks um, you know, think it's all about the product, um, but really if you're a top tier customer, you need to be on a reliable airline. Uh, Of course, Madhu, I'm I'm a journalist. Uh, Generally in the past, I haven't been able to have opinions, but these things change over time. I have to say I'm a little bit skeptical um, that American thinks that it can solve all its problems and, you know, everything is going to be fine next year. Some of these are, are, are structural and uh, problematic. And, you know, you can come back to me and say American is, is making money, and they are, but they're not making as much money as they should. And the, re- the,
0: the reliability of the airline is not where it needs to be. Well, Brian, you know, that's interesting. Um, uh The old American, the pre-merger American, was marked by toxic labor relations in 2012. And, um, uh, you know, it was the sort of Parker and team, Doug Parker and team's outreach to the unions that sort of sealed the deal for the merger. Um, Do you think, and I know that the mechanics union, I mean, this is the last sort of legacy U.S. Airways um, American contract that needs to be reconciled. But uh, do you think that... uh, conditions or, or relations between frontline employees and management has deteriorated to the point that it had been with the legacy American? Uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's it's very complicated,
1: uh, Madhu. I mean, I think that some of the problems that the frontline workers are having, not necessarily with management themselves, I mean, the customer service workers, uh, you know, they're they're paid fine, they're okay. Uh, I think what happens is that you're on the frontline in O'Hare and uh, the mechanics say, this flight has been canceled. And, uh, you know, you have to figure out what to do with those passengers. And this happens day after day, and you're not sure what the reason is. You know, you get frustrated as a frontline worker and uh, it's very hard to do your job. So, you know, let's say your average customer service worker isn't mad at Doug Parker. They might be quietly mad at the mechanics union for just making their life harder. And then it all kind of snowballs and it it, it becomes a tough job. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that people don't talk about as much, and you know this, Madhu, um, it's not. It's not as easy as American Airlines negotiating with its mechanics union. Um, what US Airways and Americans uh, labor decided to do in, in the case of the mechanics is they basically merged the two unions. Not very well. So you have. Uh, leaders from the old U.S. Airways Mechanics Union and leaders from the old American Airlines Union trying to negotiate together with American, but the American people on the Union side and the U.S. Airways people on the Union side, they don't always agree eye to eye, so that makes it tough for America to negotiate. Uh, regardless, all this stuff, it, it has to get fixed.
0: Did Kerr give you any um, any insight into sort of the, some the Americans' network and if it's facing any challenges? Um in, in particular regions of the world? Uh, we did not talk about that about work. no. Right. Um, and you, um, you know, moving along, you also had a pretty interesting conversation with uh, Air France KLM's uh, chief, uh, Ben Smith. Uh, what were your, some, some of your takeaways from that conversation? I've always been a, a big uh, Ben Smith fan. Uh, you know
1: that, Madhu, going back to the Air Canada days. Uh, ben Smith uh, walked away, uh, not so much from, from, from power at Air Canada, although he had a big job, but he walked away from a lot of money to take a tough job in Europe, the, the head of, of Air France, KLM. Those are two airlines that you know, merged uh, well more than a decade ago, uh, but they're really not necessarily merged. They, they operate like two uh, fiefdoms, and Ben has gone to Paris to try to repair relations. Um, you know, an interesting thing about Ben Smith, and, and this can be a criticism of him, is he is the group CEO at Air France KLM. And he has essentially taken the position that KLM is in very good shape. They have a robust hub in Amsterdam, but Air France is not in the same shape. And so he spends the bulk of his time on fixing Air France, which is not you know, really what Willie Walsh is doing at International Airlines
0: Group. Well, how is he fi- what needs to be fixed and how is he fixing it? What doesn't need to be fixed? I know, it's been, it's been said that the way to fix Air France KLM is to get rid of Air France.
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, Ben sees it a little bit differently. You know, he is a, an aviation geek through and through for, for decades since he was a child. And he sees a brand that's important all over the world. He sees an Africa network that no other airline can match he is deep down, he calls himself a network guy, a schedule guy. So one of the things that he's doing is just, um, you know, fixing the network, pruning the network, making sure the right
0: airplanes go to the right places, uh, which is more complicated than it sounds. Well, let's talk about airplanes. I mean, Air France is, is marked by its hideous fleet complexity. Yes. Did he get into that a little bit?
1: Uh, we got a little
0: bit into the
1: interiors of Air France airplanes. Um, you know, he basically said that... Um, uh, they weren't well thought out. And so if you can believe it, you know, the bathrooms are in the wrong places, the galleys are too big in certain places, the bulkheads are not where they need to be. And I asked him a follow-up question. I said, you know, what, what, what's the big deal about this? And he said, we're looking at every square a centimeter of the airplane. And if you have these assets for 25 or 30 years and they're not efficiently laid out and you lose two or three seats that you could have had in the aggregate, You're going to lose a lot of revenue on that, Um, so he's trying to fix it. But he has almost more pressing issues right now. So one thing that we spoke about is how he's retiring the Airbus A380s, which is a big deal, right? This is a French-made airplane, Um, but he said it just doesn't make sense to keep these these aircraft. It would cost him at least uh, 35 million euros. per airplane uh, to retrofit them. They're not a, a, a great airplane from, from a cost matter. And
0: uh, Air France uh, doesn't need them. They don't really fly into the same congestion airports that, say, British Airways does. Well, also, I mean, I remember your conversation with Smith. Um, you, he did touch on um, how the operational complexity of the A380. Can you, can you tell us what he said?
1: Oh, you know, just that, uh, you know, there there are only certain airports in the world that can handle the Airbus A380. There's only certain gates at those airports that can handle the A380. And just from an operational uh, complexity uh, point of view. He just said, it is not worth it to keep these uh, mammoth airplanes. Uh, funny thing is, I asked him at the very end of the interview, uh, Ben, what's your favorite airplane, just as a, an aviation geek? And he said the 747, which is also a gigantic airplane that, that uh, airlines have had trouble filling over the years. But uh, I guess that was the romantic in Ben, uh, not the
0: airline manager. And a little editor's note here. I, for the life of me, cannot understand why people, it's app people in the airline industry, have such a love for that janky old bucket of bolts. <laughs> the 747. Queen of the skies it may have been decades ago, but really? Come on. What's your favorite airplane meeting? One that I'm not on. I don't. I personally don't like to fly. Um, all right, Brian, and uh, we we got to talk. If we're talking about Smith, we've got to talk about uh, all the rumors about he and... KLM CEO, um, Peter Elbers hating each other. I know he, you asked him that yesterday at the Skiff Global Forum, and I just want to hear, um, hear what, tell us what he said. Well, look, Madhu, he was on stage with me at Lincoln Center in front of a thousand people, so did you expect
1: him to come out there and say, no, I really don't like the guy? Brian. Of course not. <laughs> um, you know, Ben Smith as all executives do, has an answer for everything. He said it was all overblown. It wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, Peter Elbers is a skilled um, airline manager and uh, Ben actually blamed the media for blowing this out of proportion, which I didn't care for so much because I don't think that that's true. Uh, If anybody blew it out of proportion, it was the Dutch government because they were going to the media. And they took an enormous stake in this airline, about 14%, because they were so upset with what was happening. And we're living in an era, Madu, as you know, where European governments are trying to get out of airline investments, not into them. So this is something that he'll have to deal with going forward, Uh, but it does seem to have cooled down a little bit. You don't hear of the same infighting uh, between the Dutch and
0: and French sides, but perhaps I'm not as plugged in as as you are maybe. Are, Are you hearing other things? Um, well, I have heard, you know, that uh, that there is still resentment that a non-European was chosen for this job, and that uh, although he has he's done a great job, as you you mentioned, um, you know, hammering out labor, uh, you know, new relationship, new relations, rethinking the relationships with labor and getting new contracts. That the, um, the you know what I've what I've heard sort of off the record and just. Re- and it is rumors, and I don't want to repeat rumors, but I am. Uh, the, you know, the the, the corporate staff, there's still, still lingering resentment with the management that he is not French or Dutch. And um, for what it's worth, that's my friend. Of
1: course, he was chosen because he is not French yes. or Dutch. Yes, of uh, course. Could you imagine <laughs> what would have happened in Paris if they
0: had picked somebody who was Dutch for that job? Uh, no, I can't <laughs> imagine. And I think we have even more of an uproar. But I want to congratulate you for striking a blow for the media on stage. And... and uh, and calling him out on, on just blaming the media for everything. At least he didn't call it fake news. That is true. He didn't. So, Madhu, uh, you also did an interview
1: at the Skiff Global Forum. You spoke to Ed Bastian. What did you learn from Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta
0: Airlines? Well, to repeat an Airline Weekly um, headline from years ago that Ed Bastian himself told me was his favorite, um, he continues to be a bastion of strength. Um, that would, I mean that aside, and the plug for an old issue of Airline Weekly. Um, the conversation we had was mainly about leadership. Like I said, this was a uh, you know this is not an airline industry conference, so we we, we focused on um, on leadership and how um, Bastian has sort of broadened out the focus of airline uh, excuse me of Delta. From Anderson's vision, um, his predecessor CEO Richard Anderson, who also spoke at the Skift Global Forum as in his capacity as CEO of Amtrak, um, started referring to to Delta as a high quality industrial company and not an airline company. And, and Bastion has kind of uh, run that to say to say he wants to build Delta into being a global consumer brand, a trusted global consumer brand. So um, it was interesting, you know, that just uh, to him that means like. Be, Becoming something, an airline and a company that people want to be associated with and want to fly. Did he compare Delta to any other trusted consumer brands? He didn't. Um, you know, I asked him about that. I said, you know, I kind of jokingly asked him if Delta was going to be the new Kleenex, and uh, he brushed me up, brushed me off. Uh, You and I were at a conference in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago where uh,
1: Tim Mapes, uh, Delta's chief marketing officer, talked about this also. And I remember him getting on stage and and saying something to the effect of, you know, it costs 10 cents to to make a Coke or or even less or slightly more. I don't exactly remember. And they sell it for, what, a buck or, or two. And like that is the power of branding. That's the power of being a trusted consumer brand. If you're a transportation company, you don't get away with that. No. Um, but he wants to build it into something more like Coke, right?
0: Yeah, that, that is true. And, you know, I did ask him about um, customer pain points that are beyond the air, airline's control for a lot, large part. You know, like, uh, everyone complains about the airport experience. And for a large in, in a large measure, that's beyond Delta's control. But he said, no, they're focusing on making improvements to the airport experience to make... You know, customers actually want to go to the airport and fly Delta and not have it be something they have to grit their teeth through to get on a Delta aircraft. So, I mean, that that was was an interesting part of the conversation. So, uh, in May,
1: Delta made a big deal. They sent press releases to you and me about the fact that they were going to test free Wi-Fi on 55 domestic flights every day for about a couple of weeks to see whether it worked, whether the system could handle it, because in the future, Ed keeps saying, we want to make Wi-Fi free. Uh, what did he say about that test and when are we going to get
0: free Wi-Fi? Uh, he said the test went well, but it was still a very, um, the complexity of putting Wi-Fi in aircraft um, just remains remains a, a, a barrier. Um, he says he remains committed to the fact that Wi-Fi should be free on aircraft and he says they're working on it and they'll get it get it on board soon, but he didn't really, you know, specify a timeline. So you and I know that there's
1: basically two providers in the U.S. domestic market that people like. Uh, one of them is GoGo and the other is Fiasat. Viasat tells me, they tell you, they provide the Wi-Fi for JetBlue, which is free. They can handle three devices per person, per airplane uh, on these Transcon flights. Uh, is it your understanding that GoGo's system just isn't as
0: robust and, and can't handle this? You know, um, Bastion didn't really get into that. Uh, he did say that uh, one thing that's conservative is that, uh, you know, when everyone on an aircraft is using Wi-Fi, it, it slows down to be unusable. So, I mean, by that, by that suggestion, it would appear that uh, it isn't as robust. I spoke a little bit about this uh, with American um, backstage,
1: and he said, you know, one of the problems is American has so many providers. Right? So I said, well, why can't you offer free Wi-Fi? Because Viasat can clearly do it. And he said, well, we use Viasat. Uh, we use GoGo. We use Air to Ground. We use Satellite. We use Panasonic. They can't all be free because, you know, Panasonic and GoGo Air to Ground can't handle it. And so how do you communicate that to the customers? Now, Delta, uh, eventually, will probably get to all Satellite. They'll be more able to do it. But uh, this is an extremely complicated business.
0: It is. It absolutely is. And as um, Bastian said, you know, it's one thing to have... You know, of course, there, you know people ask him why why can't there be uh, free Wi-Fi? Why can't Wi-Fi on aircraft be better? But you know, he said it's true that satellite Wi-Fi is great, but it's hard to to provide Wi-Fi on a on a vehicle that's moving at 500 miles an hour. You know, one interesting thing that uh, that Bastian said on stage was that uh, Delta is bucking the industry trend, at least in the U.S., and is actively adding um, seatback screens to all of its aircraft. And I, I found that really interesting because, you know, all all their of all Delta's competitors are busy ripping the screens out of air, aircraft. And, you know, Bastian said uh, that uh, he personally, you know, he likes to, when he's flying, he likes to watch sports on, on, um, on the screen, on his seat back. He likes to, you know, do his work on his computer and a Wi-Fi. And he might have a tablet going with some other entertainment. So he said he likes to, the customer should have options. But, uh, you know, why this ties into the Wi-Fi conversation because Delta is looking to um, connect the screens on the IFE wirelessly, so using the aircraft's Wi-Fi, getting rid of a lot of the wiring and the um, kind of obtrusive boxes of their every seat. Delta is very proud of uh, this wireless system they, from, from Delta
1: uh, flight products. Uh, I don't fly Delta very much. Uh, I think there's uh, some question about how well it works, whether it works as well as the embedded system. Um, but we're going to, we'll have to see
0: what happens. They're very bullish on it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, a final thing that I thought interesting for my conversation with, um, with Bastion was I did ask him about, um, and this is sort of followed on a question you asked him at the Skiff Global Forum last year when Delta had removed uh, or suspended discounts for uh, members of the National Rifle Association in response to mass shootings. You know, I asked him about the role of CEOs in uh, today. Uh, you know, Walmart, Walmart. Uh, Walmart recently announced that it would no longer sell certain types of ammunition in its stores, also in response to um, to mass shootings. Um, 145 CEOs signed a letter uh, asking, you know, for stricter gun control laws. And I asked him, you know, is this a comfortable place for CEOs to be? And he said, No, it isn't. But that uh, that it's struck him and his peers and other companies and in other industries that uh, you know the public is looking to. CEOs and companies to be the moral authority of the country and that that's that's an, a really interesting shift at least in my lifetime. I mean your lifetime's a lot shorter than mine, Brian so maybe it's something you're you're uh, you're more used to but it's a it's a strange position to think that the publicly traded company CEOs are now sort of guiding the morality of this country.
1: In, in a way he is, but what, what I was struck by from the conversation was he also said there's still a, there's a third rail of politics and a third rail of being a, a CEO. He, he mentioned an issue recently in uh, Georgia, Delta's home state, right. about a, a new uh, a, a law that restricts abortion. And he said, you know, we had some, some, customers in new york and los angeles specifically were very upset about this law but he said as delta ceo an atlanta based company he could not come out there and say anything either way
0: absolutely absolutely so they do pick it's like you know it is a little that's a very good point i mean that he cast himself and his peers as the moral authority but he did say they have to pick their battles and um that was an interesting uh, observation well brian thank you so much for joining me um it was a great uh great two-day conference in New York and um, to our listeners we look forward to talking to you soon thank you so much for having me we do
1: as I as I mentioned earlier big fan of the podcast <laughs> goodbye.